This is one of the strangest games I've had to comment on for this show because, well, to be as blunt as possible, it feels like a prototype slash Act 1 game. A lot of the gameplay features feel like they were just testing out concepts that didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, or I shouldn't say say it so unkindly, but it's more like they were just trying out new things. It was prototype. And then there was a lot of story aspects, which basically mean that, well, let me put it to you this way. The entire story of this game feels like Act 1 of another story. Like this Part 1 to be continued kind of a thing, right? And I'm not even talking about the twist at the end. I just mean everything about the presentation of the story felt like a lead-up to the first big end-of-act kind of a thing that you'd normally have in a typical act structure, a three-act structure, or a five-act structure. This game also is um, long. There's a reason why I kind of slammed this, uh, pushed this further towards the middle of the year so that I could slam my way through this as long as possible because... Well, on average, I have a couple of days to, to push through any given game, it, on average, when it comes to these ruminations. Obviously, that wasn't even feasible with this one, or the next one we'll be covering, Xenoblade uh, Chronicles 2. So, the weirdest thing, though, at least to me, is that, well, it doesn't feel like that's a good thing. Let me put it to you this way. Red Dead Redemption 2, which I played at the end of last year, was one of the longest games I'd played in recent memory, and in fact our longest premiere run that at that point in time we had ever done. It was a huge game, but a lot of that was all content. Like, I never felt bored. I never felt like it was padding. This game feels like the exact opposite. Like, there's a tremendously small amount of actual content and a huge amount of padding. Let me, let me try to give you two examples of what I'm talking about, just right off the top of my head. So this is an open-world game, obviously, in the same vein as Xenoblade 1, and from what I'm told, Xenoblade 2 as well. But getting from point A to point B takes forever. This is... Uh, there's actually a term for this, and I hope I wrote it down. Uh, yes, travel padding. Now, I don't know if this is the official term or not, but I've heard several game developers call it this. Travel padding is exactly what it sounds like. When you want your game to feel longer, or you want the players to spend more time in an area, you just make it take longer to get from point A to point B. Very simple, right? But that feels like it's everywhere in this game, because the typical run speed is slow. And the, and obviously you do get fast travel later, but for the most part it's just... And that may not sound like a big deal, because it, it's not like it takes an arduous amount of time to get it to any location, but it does take time, and that adds up, especially the further you get into the game. Like, if you were to take, like, if I had somehow filmed all of the footage of playing through this game and then removed just the travel time, I imagine the, the overall length of the game would be shrunk substantially, because it adds up over time. That's what travel padding is. It's not about making it take forever to get from point A to point B. It's about making it take longer to get from all points to all other points. Thus, that builds up over time and makes the game feel longer. It's a similar technique to what a lot of old games back in the NES and early PC era did, when they made the game artificially hard by, for example, forcing you to go back to the very beginning anytime you do anything wrong in order to make the game feel longer, even though most of those games were probably about 20 minutes long if you actually played through without dying. Yeah, Ninja Gaiden. Anyways, so... <laughs> There's also a lot of achievements in this game. In fact, I wrote down the number. 749 achievements in this game. No, I didn't got, bother go hunting for those. I am not that kind of person. I do like collecting things, but what I do not like is arduous tasks. <laughs> 
So I didn't even bother. And of course, obviously I had a deadline, so of course I couldn't bother. I also didn't do a lot of the side quests because I, you know, deadline, like I said, this is already an enormously huge game. But the other thing I want to talk about that felt padding-y in this game is the combat. Now, it's funny because the combat is definitely punched up and more action-y than Xenoblade 1. It's, it's very noticeable, and from what I read, uh, is also something that was del done deliberately by the developers. The thing is, though, a lot of enemies, and I'm not even talking about the tyrants, just a lot of normal enemies have a lot of health. And thanks to the unique combat system, which I'll start to talk about now, they don't really do much back to you, as long as you are at the relative power level you need to be to fight them. As long as you have mastered your arts and you overall know what you're doing, you're going to be, ha have a decent time against them. And they're not going to hurt all that much. Now that's important because they took healing out of the game. Now they didn't take it completely out. They have the, uh, the soul uh, thing that you do, which is basically a quick time event in order to heal. But that's exactly my point. Very few enemies were legitimately challenging for me. In fact, I did actually go out of my way to fight a couple of tyrants, specifically because I was curious if they were challenging, and they were. But even those weren't really a fun kind of challenge to me, and I'll explain why in just a second. So, enemies have lots of HP, don't do a lot of damage to you, and for the most part, don't really involve a lot of... I hate to say skill, because that sounds so elitist. But my point being, a lot of enemies boil down to, did you bring the right setup... Yes, you did. You win. Now, that, there's a specific type of strategy that that applies to. Uh, Pokemon games is an excellent example of several games where if you, if you have... Basically, it's pre-battle strategy. I've talked about this concept before. There's pre-battle strategy and, and during-battle strategy. And in pre-battle strategy, it's all about you know, setting up and making sure this aligns with this, making sure you have this equipped and this, and I have this class, and I'm going to bring these characters, and I'm going to make these abilities here, and all that fun stuff, right? That's pre-battle strategy. This, once you get to the actual battle... All the dominoes are, assuming you did everything correctly, just lined up and fall over, right? Whereas in-battle strategy would be more of, okay, I have to dynamically adapt to what's happening because, you know, it doesn't matter which gun I brought, it matters how I use it. Those, that's the different types of uh, technique when it comes to combat and difficulty. This feels a lot more like pre-battle strategy. And that also means that every battle takes probably in the range of, I'd say, 5 to 30 seconds longer than it should. And I know what you're saying. Oh, that's pathetic. But it's the exact same concept as the travel padding. In other words, 5 to 30 seconds adds up a lot over the course of a 100-hour game, or however long this actually ended up being. So you can kind of see how that, once again, stretches out the runtime. But I wanted to talk about the combat thing and the healing thing, because the AI sucks so badly. I, I jotted down the two things that pissed me off most right here. Uh, first of all... There's no gambits in this game. Now, for those of you who don't know what I mean by that, in Final Fantasy XII there's a concept where you can basically set up an AI series of triggers, a, a scripts, if-thens, to put it simply as possible, which allow you to have a degree of control over how your party works and functions, which is a great feature that I think should be in a huge number of video games. It is not in this game. You have a degree of control over your party, basically go here or attack this, but that's about the extent of it. See, that's kind of important because remember how I mentioned how some of the things actually are challenging? Well, most of them are challenging because they lean on gimmicks, which I'm okay with. I'm actually one of those people who likes gimmicks in combat and tactics. But the AI doesn't understand gimmicks. So the two things, like I said, that I mentioned earlier are, one, they would completely ignore any terrain whatsoever. I'll never forget this one fight where... Uh, Lynn was just like, yeah, and went into deep water and couldn't attack as a consequence. And I'm like, Lynn, what are you doing? Lynn, get out of there. Lynn! 
And um, they have no understanding of, for lack of a better way to put it, the status effects changing, either on you or, more importantly, on the enemy. So if there's an enemy who happens to be reflecting a certain type of damage, guess what? They're just going to keep spamming on that enemy. Because, again, the, the, the AI is dumb. And in many cases, I felt like the AI was so bad that it actually detracted from my, my overall enjoyment of the game because it's not like you can come, you, you can't bring them. You need their extra damage because of the extra health on the enemies. And you can see why it was this close to being an interesting combat system because they did do one thing I actually really enjoy, and that is leaning heavily on a cooldown based combat system. So in brief, there's usually considered to be three general types of approaches when it comes to RPG mechanics as far as a combat system. There's cooldown-based, there's resource-based, and then there's generation and spender-based. Now, all three of these uh, can be described in, in quite a few uh, games, but I like to use Diablo 3 as my example because Diablo 3 actually has different classes that use all three of these, or in some cases some blurring between the two. Cooldown-based is obvious. That's this game. In other words... I'm going to use this ability, and then it goes on cooldown. And that's it. That's the only factor that matters is the time. Now, a cooldown-based system more or less naturally means that you have a choice between two, two general options. You can try to alpha strike, which means blowing all your cooldowns as quickly as you can and jumping, pu punching as much power into the enemy as you can, and then basically idling for however many seconds while everything comes back off of cooldown. Although it's worth noting that in this game there are things that can speed up the cooldown as well, which is really cool, uh, including the whole uh, the tension system, which basically functions as the, this game's form of a limit break, which is also a very cool system, by the way. I'll talk about that in a second. So that's, or you could decide to try and spread it out or have like a continuous sort of damage, or you can try to only attack when the enemy's weak. Cooldown based system basically puts a lot of the impetus for how you output your damage or your abilities in general on the player. That's why I generally like a cooldown system. Uh, in brief, a, a resource system is obvious. You have 500 MP, spells cost MP. That's a resource system. And a generator spender. Well, again, that's kind of obvious, but uh, let's use World of Warcraft as the most obvious example of that. Warriors do attacks which generate rage, and then they do attacks which spend rage. Very simple. And I, I, I'm not going to talk about those two uh, combat systems because they're not in this game, because it's a cooldown-based game. But I want to talk about that tension thing. So I've liked the idea of limit breaks ever since Final Fantasy VI, although I think they were badly implemented in Final Fantasy VI. But the very concept of, okay, you know, things are tough, you have this special option to try and turn the tables, is a cool mechanic to me, because it's basically a built-in method of avoiding seesaw effect when it comes to combat. Really quickly, if you don't understand what I mean by that, seesaw effect is the more you tilt, the more you tilt. So if you're already losing, it gives you a chance to try and turn things around, rather than just accelerating your own loss. Make sense? Now that being stated, the way they do it here is also very effective, because the the biggest uh, benefit from the tension system, at least for me, was the fact that it, it, it sped everything up. You basically get a universal haste buff, and in a game where everything relies on cooldowns, you can see how that's efficient and useful. And indeed, I actually uh, set up a couple of my own arts specifically around the idea of building up my tension in a specific way so that I can then, you know, alpha strike the hell out of something once I actually hit the mode. Now... That being said, the I don't like the usage of QTEs in this game. Now, I, I've had a mixed opinion on QTEs over the years, 
And it really does depend on how they're implemented in any given game. Uh, in this game, I feel like they are the most fundamental baseline of QTEs. In other words, basically you stop playing the game to play a reflex challenge. And that's what I mean by that. Now that can be blurred in one direction or the other. You know, sometimes those QTEs are something that makes sense within the context. Sometimes they're built into the combat, like most of the Mario RPGs, for example. But in the case, this case, it's just circle, you know. And I didn't care for that personally. And the fact that you have to lean on that so heavily to build up your connections with people, to build up your heart values, to get the side quest was just, yeah. Anyways. Look at my notes here. Um, also, one other thing that I found amusing, and this is true in a huge number of RPGs, is I noticed that the mechanical skill was the only skill that I really should have bothered cranking throughout the course of the game, because they just get so much more out of that than out of the other methods. Um, looking at my notes here. I do want to mention the Tyrants briefly. This is an interesting game design choice, because so Tyrants sometimes are obvious, you know, the big, giant creatures. And in general, this game does use the approach of larger equals more dangerous. Okay, I'm with that. But the actual tyrants aren't always labeled, so sometimes they can surprise you when you're just, hey, what's that? Oh, God! And um, in addition to that, though, it's the application of tyrants that weirds me out. Because tyrants, in the most basic sense of the word, are just elites. And that's a concept that's very old and very basic when it comes to RPG design. Mobs that are stronger than other mobs and are more rewarding than other mobs. More risk, more reward, very basic. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm just saying, you know, there's not much to say about the concept uh, in and of itself. But what I do want to say is that I feel like they used, they peppered too many tyrants in the world. I get that they were trying to do that to kind of pull that sort of MMO-y thing in. And I get that they were trying to... Uh, it, directly quoting the developers here, appeal to a more hardcore crowd. But in my experience, and I'll probably get some flack for this, all that really meant was I just spent more time running away than actually trying to accomplish whatever goal I was involved in. Because anytime you accidentally aggro a tyrant, <coughs> stupid AI, then <laughs> you're generally speaking, there's only three, two circumstances in which you're going to fight a tyrant. By accident, because you either didn't realize it was a tyrant, or again, latent AoE just pulsed it, or you are deliberately fighting it. And in the former case, it's just, ah! And in the latter case, you just crush it like a bug. At least that was my experience. I don't know. I, I just feel like they could have done more with the tyrants and used them more... Uh, more carefully in, with regards to the level design. More precision in exactly where they put them and why they put them there. And rather than just the, the existing system, which basically just felt like... And then there's tyrants just here and there. You know, I don't know. It didn't feel like there was a lot of purpose to it as its current implementation. And I'm probably going to get some flack for that and whatever. Let's talk about the story such as it is. And I hate, I hate to say that, but honestly, just being completely blunt, the story for this game is very weak. There is only... I point to the six points of story, right? The plot is mega weak. The characters are kind of there. There's very little character growth. I would argue that only one character actually has a character arc of any value. That would be Lao, by the way. Um, the theme? Well, there is a theme, but really there, oh, there's only one part, uh, part of this game that really uh, stands out for me when it comes to the, the six points of story. And that would be setting. Because they spend an arduous amount of time actually establishing all the, all the different 
aspects of the multiple galaxies that they have this multiple galaxy spanning federation of doom that we never see of course it's all in the background and all of the different uh, races and all of their uh, interactions with each other and how the ganglions work and how the, the different clans work and how the humans are interacting with each other and it felt like a huge and well-developed and interesting world it's just nothing else was there to support that in my opinion of course in fact, truth be told, I'm only going to be commenting on a grand total of, uh, looks like three, looking at my notes here, of the characters, because it just, they were there for the most part. First thing I want to talk about is the uh, the ghosts, which is one of the most untalked about things in the entire game. The ghosts are the ones who are actually fighting and end up destroying right in the intro of the game. And we do get a few inferences and little tidbits about the ghosts, like the fact that they're fighting the Federation and blah, blah, blah. But that's all we get from them. And that's all I'm going to say about them for right now. I just wanted to mention them first, because when I was playing through this game, the ghost was like, oh, that's interesting. I want to know more. And they never told me more. But I do have something else to say about them. I swear I just want to save it for later, because the next thing I want to talk about is the ganglions. Uh, I don't know if they're pre-ganglionic fiber or post-ganglionic nerve, but regardless, the ganglions are funny because, well, in many ways they serve in a sort of, you know, I don't know what to call this. It's a science fiction term for when you are insignificant, right? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, and there's a lot of science fiction that pulls this kind of approach to things where... You know, your individual or your entire planet or your entire species or your entire galaxy or whatever is all insignificant in the greater scope of things. And the ganglions are actually a pretty excellent use of that, assuming that was the intended goal, because the ganglions are low-tier gangsters, basically. Small-scale criminal scum that are used to do some dirty work of the Federation. And that's basically it. You know, they're they're... I don't want to use a real-life equivalent because someone would probably take offense at it, but, you know, they are not a superpower. And they're the ones who basically destroy Earth on purpose, no less. And <laughs> it's funny to me because it also... Then the ganglions end up on... Uh, oh, my God, on Mira as a consequence of their actions. I'll talk about Mira in a second, don't worry. But what I find most interesting about the ganglions to, to talk about is that their method of... Uh, let's call it recruitment. <laughs> I think that's a good word. It's actually a fascinating method. They'll roll up to a planet or a space station or whatever, and it's like, hey, listen, uh, we're here. Uh, we're going to crush you like a bug unless you join us. And then they watch as the inevitable happens. And, you know, some of the people decide to turn coat, and some of them decide to support them. And they're like, ah, we must we must join them. It's the only way. No, we must fight back. It's the only way. Rah, civil war. And then the Gaglians support the guys who want to join them in wiping out the other side and recruit them, and then they move on. It's a wonderfully pragmatic method of recruitment. But the fact that they do this on a planetary level, despite being small-scale themselves in the overall scope of things, once again, gets back to that whole you are insignificant thing I mentioned earlier. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is Blade. Because I actually... Actually, hang on. I suppose I should mention Luxar here. So Luxar exists. Anyway, so now I want to talk about Blade. Because one of the things I found most interesting about Blade is their non-military application side of things. Obviously, Blade functions as the closest thing to an actual military force within this setting. But... The non-military applications are what really appealed to me because they're on an uncharted world, which is actually a plot point, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
they're on an uncharted world, and they have no idea what's here in terms of flora, in terms of fauna, in terms of terrain, and there's just so much they need to know, and that makes so much sense to me. Like, if you, if you had a, a high, sci- high science fiction, high-powered, high-tech society dropped into a completely unknown environment, probably one of the first things they would do is try to figure out what the hell they're on. I mean, just to use it at the most fundamentally basic level, you have no idea if those berries on that bush over there are safe to eat or not, right? I mean, that's just the most fundamental level of what these people have to do and accomplish. And so I like the fact, this is probably one of the things about the gameplay I like too, I liked wandering around and exploring things and scanning things and getting paid for it, because that just was cool. This is going to sound really weird, but the game it reminded me most of was Breath of Fire 2. Because in Breath of Fire 2, there's this group of people, I don't even remember what they're called right now, but it's basically the Mercenary Guild, and that's what you you start out as a part of in Breath of Fire 2. But when I say mercenaries, I don't mean like, we'll go and fight wars for you. I mean, we'll do tasks for you. And that's what Blade felt like. We will do tasks. We'll go and explore. We'll go and reclaim. We will go and study. We will go and fight. You know, whatever it is that the situation needs. And I thought that was just a nice touch. And it really helped add to the overall, um, I guess, believability of the setting. In fact, in all honesty, I like a lot of the setting of Mira itself. I just don't like everything that's off Mira. The whole multi-galaxy-spanning federation and the whole colossally universal war that's going on, that was just too much, too much. But I suppose I should talk about Project Exodus, because this is another one of those makes-perfect-sense things that I really enjoyed. Project Exodus, the way I look at this, at least, because this is never 100% confirmed, at least I didn't see it 100% confirmed, I love the idea that... How do I put this? that only those who are most worthless after the critical event are the ones who can make the means to survive the critical event happen prior to the critical event. Something about that just feels so symmetrical to me, and I love it. In other words, we find out that a huge number of criminals, of people who had money, of people who were, who were you know, uh, children of the wealthy, you know, that kind of thing. We find out that a lot of those people are the ones who were selected to be the, you know, 40 million or whatever, uh, or was it 20 million, on uh, on Project Exodus, the ones who were going to leave on the Ark, on the White Whale. And that makes perfect sense, because, remember, <laughs> this is so wonderful, because after they get on the Whale and after they leave and Earth is destroyed, those people are the most worthless in a truly survivalist situation. To be completely blunt, most of the truly wealthy do not have any skills to offer a species, at least with regards to humanity. Now, there are some wealthy people who actually do have a brain, but historically speaking, most truly wealthy people are only skilled in one of two things. Letting other people manage their money, because that's just how most wealthy people do it, or being sufficiently morally bankrupt in order to try and make money happen. So these people are horrible people or worthless people. Hence why they are so useless to be on this ship. And this also kind of helps to explain, by the way, why the humans on Mira are so screwed up, because so many of them are from this this group of people. Anyways, having said this, though, you can understand why these people were so critical, because, well, obviously, you know, if you look at it from a planetary perspective... Obviously, you know, getting this ship on and getting the best of humanity on it would be the kind of thing that all humans should strive for. But that's from the perspective of the critical event already happening, in this case, the destruction of Earth. Before Earth is destroyed, we still have an economy. 
And an economy isn't just money. An economy is resources and the services and the movement of resources and services through itself, right? In other words, they still have to keep in mind things like getting a hold of the materials and hiring the right personnel and making sure they work the right hours and getting them fed. And there's an enormous amount of infrastructure that has to be dealt with in order to get this project built. Now, we could all say that it would be nice and, and you know, idealistic to say that maybe humanity should just band together to send the best of their people to avoid the bears over there in order to try and make sure that they build this ship and get the hell off the planet. But I think this is a far more realistic take on that, that the people who had the money and the power are the ones who got this thing built because that's how the, the, the system worked pre-event. And then, naturally, those people got a seat or got to pick who got a seat. And the other people, well, they get to die. And uh, that's very realistic to me. It's actually probably one of the more interesting story points for, uh, in, in the entire setting. It also, again, helps to inform why the people act the way they do on Mira, which I think was kind of critical because otherwise, if you think about it, if all the best and the brightest ended up on Mira, you, you could still do storytelling, don't mistake me, but a lot of the characterization would be a lot more restricted because of that limitation. Anyways. So then... then <laughs> This brings up an interesting question. We don't really see any kids in this game. Not really. We see some young people, you know, teenage years, but that's it. We don't see children. Now, that makes perfect sense. Uh, spoiler. I mean, this whole thing is spoilers. I can't talk about this game's story without spoiling, so this is your final warning. But the the fact that these are the last remaining humans... First of all, this sounds like a near story. But second of all, um, to me, this sounds like any of the children were the one, you know, the actual children, babies and whatnot, uh, sub-teens or teens who didn't get woken up, were the ones who were on the data core when it crashed and was destroyed back when the ship crashed, when you know, before the game even starts. Which means all those kids are dead in the most final way possible. It also means that there's a pretty good chance this species you know, this current species, which we are calling humans, does not really have the capacity to reproduce, which means it is now a finite species that is doomed to extinction. So, that's interesting. Although we do see a couple of examples of mimeosomes which appear to be fine without their handlers, including, of course, you, the player character, because you were woken up after all of this. You never had a, a backup copy. <laughs> this is um this is one of the more interesting story points here because it's entirely possible that what we're seeing is a form of droid effect that the mimeosomes themselves are sufficiently advanced and designed that through enough interaction they can slowly develop into something you know approaching uh, sentient and sapient life Lord knows there's a lot of very strange dialogue options that you can pick in this game and maybe that's trying to indicate that Ultimately, I can only speculate on this one because, again, it feels like act one of a story. But to me, I feel like this is... Well, this is basically exactly that. That, that, that the Mimeosomes are something that, as long as you keep them going and running long enough, they will develop into their own beings. Now, that being said, I don't think that's true for the other people 
Because I, my personal theory on what happened, and this is pure theory, is that probably Mira, we'll talk about that in a second, took all of the data from all those people who were in that data core when it smashed and then just put it into their bodies, into their actual uh, mimeosomes so that they could wander around and function around. So in other words, basically just transferring the life, to put it in the simplest term as possible, although in this case it would probably be more memory because these probably more like copies rather than the originals, but whatever. Transferring the life from the data into the bodies so that they are now still human even though nothing about them remains human. That's my take on that. I have no idea if that's true. Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions about that. It is kind of horrific to think about it, though, because at several points in the story, you know, mimeosomes die, and the general response is, well, you know, that sucks, but at some point we're going to reestablish controls with the life hold, and it'll, be, it'll all be fine. Everything will be great, and they'll be able to build them new bodies and bring them back out. Nope, they are dead. They are staying dead. They are gone, is actually a more accurate way to put that. So that's fun. I want to talk about Elma briefly, because... Well, she's a weird. She's another weird one. We don't really find out a lot about her species, other than that she's basically an elf, and we know that she cares about human lives for some reason and was trying to actually ensure that we survived the coming apocalypse, which is very nice of her. Why? <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds like such a strange thing that you have to explain why you want to save a species from extinction, but at the same time, given the un generally uncaring and horrific nature of the setting, at least in the galactic sense. Why does she care if we exist or if we continue? Now, I've heard a lot of wild theories on this one, but i got to be honest, I don't even have a theory myself. In fact, if anything, my personal take on this is that she and the group she works with, which is mentioned a couple of times throughout the course of the game, uh, are basically ex like PETA, except on a sentient species level, that they actually, sentient and sapient species level, that they actually want to go around and, and preserve life as it is in threatening danger, and humans were in danger because of the ganglions, so there you go. That's my best take on that. Oh yeah, this is probably a good time to mention that this game has, near as I can tell, absolutely no connection whatsoever with the other Xenoblade games. Like, Xenoblade 1 and Xenoblade 2 do have a connection to each other. I'm not going to even talk about what that connection is right here, because we're not talking about that, those games in this. But as a consequence of the connection of those two games, I always figured this would be the third spoke in those two games. Those of you who played them probably know what I'm talking about. But And again, I don't want to spoil unrelated games and rumination. But basically, I thought this was the original Earth. Let's put it to you that way. Nope. <laughs> no connection whatsoever. Anyways. Uh, so I suppose that brings us to Mira. Which is the only other thing to really uh, talk about. Mira, named after Maurice Chausen. Which is someone who refused to leave behind her human body, thinking it would be horrible. Anyways, what the hell is up with Mira? Now, I've heard two predominant theories. In fact, I was talking to my friend Pax about this, and he brought up the second theory. The first theory is that this place is um, eldritch in the most traditional sense of the word. Something almost Lovecraftian, something beyond our ken, something beyond our ability to understand. Because let's look at the list here, shall we? So first of all, some people just kind of end up here. That's why there's such a diversity of life on Mira. That's what happened to the Ganglions, actually, after the battle on Earth. Um, everyone can understand each other perfectly, despite the fact that they all are speaking different languages. Okay. Um, it's an uncharted world, even though all of the worlds in the galaxies have already been fully charted and explored. Okay. It's a world that just kind of pops in and out of existence whenever needed, as is example when the, the, white man, uh, the white whale ends up crashing here. 
Okay. It also prevents anyone from leaving it, which is another interesting little point. And, as I mentioned earlier, there's a decent chance that Mira itself, with all the other weirdness going along with it, is the specific reason why the people were uploaded from their originals into the bodies. A again, whether that's the original person or a copy, yeah, I think it's a copy, personally, but that's just based on an on almost lack of information on the matter. So that's what we know about Mira. I mean, there's a few other things I'm skipping, but Mira is also a wonderfully hostile place. The Brimstone Rain is, is my personal favorite. But, yeah, the weather here is extremely dangerous and, ter and terrifying, and so are the animals, as mentioned earlier. And, and so is the flora as well, that doesn't come up as much. What the hell is up with this planet? Now, again, I already mentioned the first idea, that this is an eldritch planet, that it is just a weird or a warp or whatever the hell you want to call that. And that pretty much explains it by itself. The second option is that this planet is basically Brainiac. <laughs> I could just picture some of you going, huh? And some of you going, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense, depending on how much you know about Brainiac. But to summarize it in brief, Brainiac, at least as how, how he is usually portrayed, because there's actually multiple Brainiacs, let's just not get into that right now, is someone who likes to collect species or concepts of species or individuals of species that he considers to be the best, the absolute epitome of that species. And so... He will go out of his way to be like plucking people or plucking individuals or plucking whole cities out of their their planet and then destroying what's left as he puts it into his own little collection. And you kind of get that vibe from Mira, right? That it's like, oh, the ganglions are there. Oh, it's the last of humanity. You know, just it's just a vibe I got throughout the whole thing. Again, I have no idea what the hell's going on here. It's also entirely possible, and this kind of is a pseudo-in-between thought, that Mira does all this without any actual sentience or sapience behind it. That there is no intelligence guiding Mira in what it does. It's just a freak coincidence planet that doesn't exist. Which brings me to the overall theme of the game. <laughs> See... <sighs> The theme of the game, if I was to summarize it, is best described as us versus them. In other words, a whole lot of the, the stories and the presentations and the side stories that I read about, um, the ghosts, I told you I'd bring the ghosts up again, the ghosts we learn are function as a form of antimatter. Either their actual existence is a form of antimatter, or it's just their core or whatever. But to me, that's very critically important because the way they describe the ghosts and the Federation both, it sounds like this is more of a survivalist combat rather than a more political one. In other words, that the ghosts represent them, whereas the Federation represents us. And the two are incompatible, just like antimatter is incompatible with matter, right? Ergo, the idea here that it is us versus them. Which one do you choose? Now, of course, most reasonable people, logically or otherwise, will always choose us. But that's not the actual question. It's not whether you will choose us versus them. It is how far you are willing to push that. Because we see that throughout the course of this game. A lot of different groups or individuals are willing to push the us versus them to an extreme extent. The Ganglians are another excellent example of this. They believed, obviously, Luxar himself was someone who was, I am super superior and you are super inferior. But the Ganglians in general were a group of people who adamantly feared the humans since they were descendants of the Samarians, which had programmed into their DNA basically a doom, doomsday attack so that if the Ganglions interacted with the humans, they would be doomed, right? So they feared them. So 
us versus them. And in this case, the ganglions pushed the us side of things, the, us, the bar on the us side of the uh, equation, far enough to be willing to genocide humanity in order to ensure our sa salvation, or in this case, their salvation. Make sense? This also is showcased by Mira, the individual, that is to say, again, the woman I mentioned earlier, Maurice Chausson. Because in the discussion of us versus them, she decided that it wasn't worth enough in order to actually go ahead and abandon her body in order to move forward with Project Exodus. That that was an insufficient, that that had crossed the line, basically. That she was not willing to go that far simply to ensure her survival in the face of her enemy. So it's not just a versus thing either. It's about how far you're willing to go to ensure survival. Not existence, not living, just survival. We see here that it, basically everyone we interact with who is human throughout the course of this thing is probably the original intelligence uploaded or copied into a robotic body in order to be able to continue forward. Is that pushing the line too far? We see plenty of these people being willing to uh, enslave or hurt or in some cases kill others just because they feel like it is a competitive scenario and you know, survival of the fittest and how far they're willing to push that. And you can see how these two themes kind of weave into each other throughout basically every interaction in the game. And I find that to be fascinating because ultimately the game doesn't actually answer its own questions. How far are you willing to go to survive, and, and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, and how far you're willing to push the bar when it comes to us versus them. It doesn't say this is right. It doesn't say this is acceptable. It just poses the questions and shows a lot of examples of people who are willing to go to different lengths in both directions in order to ensure either their survival or to accept their passing. It's an interesting thought experiment, and I'd be, I'd be very curious, as always, to hear your thoughts on this. But that's all I've got, so I'll see you next time. Cool.